I don't know any company that's ever said, as a result of working this company, we hope you have a better relationship with your spouse. Hope you have more time with your children. I hope you have the ability to get outside and play. I hope that you go to the dentist and the doctor and buy healthy food. That context, once we put that out there and said, this is what we're trying to do at Patagonia, this is what we want to do about your life. It's like the Hotel California. People checked in and they did not check out. Greetings and a warm welcome to all of us to Inner Sections, where our aspiration is to dissolve all kinds of boundaries that we consciously or unconsciously impose on ourselves, individually and collectively, that limit us from seeing truth in its fuller light and human potential and possibilities in their most expansive form. Today, we are going to have the opportunity to hear from someone who has been at the very center of a beautiful revolution that is happening in the workplace. And before I introduce him, let me share a quote from the founder of the organization that he has stewarded the human resources function for, and that is Patagonia. And so these are the words of Patagonia's founder, Yvonne Chonard. Here is what he says. He says, Our current landscape is filled with complacency, be it in the corporate world or in the environmental front. Only on the fringes of an ecosystem, those outer rings, do evolution and adaptation occur at a furious pace. The inner center of the system is where the entrenched, non-adapting species die off doomed to failure by maintaining the status quo. Businesses go through the same cycles, conventional corporations at the very center of the ring, and these tend to eventually die off through either their own misdeeds or catastrophic events, such as dismal economic climates or unforeseen competitions. Only those businesses that operate with a sense of urgency, dancing on the fringe, constantly evolving, open to diversity and new ways of doing things, are going to be here 100 years from now. That is a beautiful, I think, provocation and inspiration for the conversation that's going to ensue. It is my real pleasure and joy to welcome into our midst Dean Carter. Dean has been an innovative and highly recognized leader of people and culture for over two decades across Fortune 50 hot growth and culture-driven organizations. He currently serves as the Chief People and Purpose Officer at Guild Education, which is a career opportunity platform for forward-thinking employers to invest in their employees. He is also the former CHRO, as I mentioned, the Chief Human Resource Officer of Patagonia, but also in the past of Sears Holdings and Fossil Inc. Dean has also previously served in HR and management roles at Pier One Imports, Pearl Vision, and Procter & Gamble. His perspectives on human resources on go-big cultures and employee experiences have been featured in leading media like The Economist, Harvard Business Review, NPR, The Wall Street Journal, and various other books and national publications. Great pleasure to have Dean in our midst. Dean, welcome. Wow, thank you. Thank you. That is always, that always great to hear Yvonne's words. I was, uh, for eight years, was a student of Yvonne Chouinard, and there are so many things that he said just so eloquently and beautifully, like the the quote that you just had. And, and also, so sometimes just the few words. I remember one of the moments we had all, the first day that we came back from COVID, so it had been two and a half years that we'd been apart. And lot, we, we had a food truck and people were all over campus and I happened to run into Yvonne. And we were both holding a cup of coffee and looking out at this. And, and I said, this looks a lot different today than it does a month ago, doesn't it? He said, yeah, in this very like Yvonne gruff voice. And I said, yeah, it just feels, feels a little different. And he looked at me and he just said, you know what, Dean? No people, no company. I was like, for like, no people, no company. And anyhow, there's just so many, I could give a list of moments like that with him where he just says something that really is brilliant and sharp and what a great person to learn from you spent seven years there it's um it's in many ways a very unique and bright spot in our business ecosystem as an organization that really fuses an incredible sense of purpose and values right with um 
profit making and, and, and you know, the more conventional parameters of business success. Um, how did Patagonia change you and this proximity to Yvonne, his ideas, his spirit? How, how do you feel you're different coming out of it than when you went into it? You know, that's a great question. I, I've thought a lot about that, actually. Here's, here is what I came to believe about Patagonia, is that every day Patagonia nudged me to be the person, closer to the person that I want to be. Every day I would get challenged. Just when I think that I'm j enough of an activist, then he nudges me one more time. Just when I think I'm doing enough for the planet or my own kind of personal commitment, I get nudged in another way. I'll give you a great example. Just when I think I have like an understanding of our impact and footprint and then, you know, Patagonia comes out and says, okay, by the way, our, everything that we're doing about making puppers and sustainably made jackets is not saving the planet. It's actually destroying the planet slower than everyone else. And so if we're really going to save the planet, we have to think differently. And so he, Vaughn introduced, like, in the future, 100 years from now, we're going to be a food company. Like, the way to save the planet is through food. That was like, what? Like, we've, we've been talking about outdoor, and we've been talking about surfboards and wetsuits and sustainably made puffer jackets. Like, that was a hard left turn. And, and here's why. He just said, if the world moves to regenerative agriculture, we have healthy soils and healthy water and healthy spaces, then not only do we slow climate change or stop it, we begin to reverse it. And he's like, if our purpose is to save the planet, then we have to evolve to a very different company over time. And then I just kind of thought about what am I, what am I, what's my impact on the planet? Like, what am I putting in? What am I taking out? That's the, and, uh, and we'll, we'll talk more about how that impacted how, it completely reshaped how I think about my role of leading people, humans. And, uh, but it was a significant shift in the business model and a significant shift in my own personal view of what I'm coming to work every single day to do as like the head of people. Yeah, it reminds me of a early reflection from um, Steve Jobs in a Rolling Stones interview where he was asked about like, yeah, you know, what drives him to do what he's doing? He framed it this way. You know, he said, look, every day, you know, we wake up and we consume things. You know, we consume things that other people have really produced for us. And he said that it's very rare and unique when you have this opportunity to actually create something that nobody else has in the past and put it into the flow, put it into the flow, right, to be able to allow the rest of humanity to benefit from something that you put out there versus, you know, what you're taking. So this notion of regenerativeness or what you're putting in versus what you're taking out, you know, I love that theme. And, you know, in the way you just described it, it seems like Yvonne is kind of like a practical philosopher. He is. He is. He's a practical, and he's a not just a practical philosopher, but he's a studied philosopher. He does a lot of reading and research and speaks to people who are thinking differently than him and, and that's another thing he always says, you know, when you're looking at something new, be sure and do your homework. You just can't, can't jump in. But yeah, he is uh, personally for me a philosopher. Any interaction I had with Yvonne, I was listening intently um, as a student or apprentice. That's kind of my view. as like for living differently. And it wasn't just Yvonne. He, there were a lot of people at Patagonia change and were inspiring. His wife, Melinda Chenard, extraordinary and a big part of culture and, and, and setting beliefs around if you really want to support women at work, talk to Melinda Chenard. I remember really specifically, if I can tell this story real, real quick, I, Please. Well, I just joined Patagonia and I'd left Sears and we were building a childcare center in the warehouse. And most warehouses don't have child care centers, by the way. Usually that's reserved for corporate offices, but certainly not for warehouses. And Melinda insisted that we put a child development center in this warehouse in Reno. So I got a call that said they were a little bit delayed. And I said, okay, I'll let Melinda know that, you know, the construction's delayed a few months. So I sent a note to Melinda that said, hi, Melinda, 
construction is going to be delayed just a few months on the development center. And she said, okay, thanks for letting me know. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to put on the, on the microphone, in the megaphone, at the warehouse, every single woman is now on paid leave who is nursing. I will not have a single day go that another woman at that warehouse can't bring her baby to work and can't nurse so they can all go home on paid leave until this is done and nurse their children. Wow. From that day forward, I'm very clear about what I need to do for nursing moms. Like any decision I make around that is making sure that nursing moms are not separated from their babies as a result of work. Clear on that decision. And that was, and that's a game changer for me. I've held that with me around, you know, women at work and the systemic challenges of, you know, having children and how do you mitigate that and the responsibility to do that? It shows up at Patagonia. We have major, we have senior lead, women in leadership all over the place. And it's not because we have this specific, like, women at work program. We just make sure that they, what, 98% of women return from leave from Patagonia because they can continue nursing. They've got childcare. They've got support. We, Patagonia, flies a nanny with you. If you're traveling and you can do a traveling companion so you don't have to pour your breast milk out in the airport. Anyhow, there's just this, when you make systemic changes based on something you really do care about, then you make impact. Otherwise, it's just a lot of walking, not much, a lot of talking, not much walk. Well, you know, what I also read in that story is the genuineness of that intent behind it. I mean, you know, she deeply cared and she got you to a point where your, you know, heart was opened up and you got attuned and you deeply cared. And so these policies are not just lip service. They're not just being done to check off boxes or to look good or, you know, just mechanically and operationally go through things. And that's one of the things that both pains me most about, if you want to call it like mainstream corporate, you know, kind of culture as well as, uh, you know, something that makes me want to aspire, right, to help support and advance the evolution of those cultures in, you know, in, in a world of tomorrow, which is that everything we do, you know, should be coming from a place of deep caring, place of deep caring, you know, deep, deep clarity and courage of our convictions, you know, kind of thing. And it seems like from everything I've, you know, been studying about Patagonia uh, through your, you know, talks and, uh, you know, Yvonne's writings and things is that it's a culture where everything comes from that place of just like deep caring and clarity. It does every single day. Deep understanding and clarity of like what we're here for and what we're doing in any company. And it does, it's easy to think about companies like Patagonia who lean in heavy on something like climate, like saving the planet. Not that everyone believes that the planet is in crisis, but that's another thing. But when you believe that, when you believe that if we don't do something that our children and grandchildren won't be living on the same kind of place that we're living in. Then, then you walk up the stairs two steps at a time. When, when you believe at a place like Guild that um, there are so many people who are locked out of opportunity and really need a second chance, either their parents didn't go to school or there's just life challenges. And when you firmly believe that, that given the chance and given a coach and given an opportunity that you can help someone like lift out of a place they feel completely locked out, lifted into a system that they are completely feel completely locked out of, then that you come to work every single day, jumping two steps at a time. We had a little bit of conversation about capitalism, and if we don't do this unlock for a lot of people and bring them into to the system, if we just ignore this, then we're going to be in deep trouble. And I think as a country. We've got to do this unlock and find the so many people who feel left out of the system and structure and bring them in for whatever reason, either diversity, inclusion, middle America, big pieces of our country. We need to bring them into, into the system. Reminds me a quote from Gandhi. You know, he said the difference between what we do and what we are capable of doing would be like enough to solve most of the world's problems. You know, if yeah. you can get people a little bit closer, you know, to that place, right? Dean, thank you for opening up uh, to, you know, Guild and its culture and purpose as well. That's where you are now in your post-Patagonia life. I want to 
I want to talk a little bit about sort of, uh, you know, not just the arc of your experience at Patagonia, uh, which I know is going to be a keen of interest to our audience, but also, you know, what you have been doing since and where you're headed. Um, but before we get there, let's kind of turn the clock backwards a little bit, right? And so in your journey, in the, your formative years, uh, what have been the key influences and pillars that made you who you are? And I'm referring to not to the pre-Patagonia days, because I'm also curious about one thing, which is, you know, for a culture that is as um, special, unique, you know, forward thinking as, you know, as Patagonia was, I've also seen it like it's hard, you know, sometimes to recruit leadership from the outside, you know, because um, people come in wired, you know, in a certain way based on the kind of cultures and organizations that they've been a part of. And it's hard to make them do the unlearning to open them up to, you know, their fullest potential in the current environment, right? And so I'm just curious, like what got Patagonia to see in you Right, somebody who could be a tremendous, like not just a participant, but actually culture shaper. When people ask me, Dean, what was it like to, because you came from Sears and into Patagonia, what was what was it like to adjust that? And then my answer was, I've been adjusting all my life. My whole life has been adjustment. Working at Patagonia was the first time I felt like I wasn't adjusting. Yeah, it was like my big un personal unlocked. That's powerful. Like my whole life, I've just, it's been an adjustment. And I, I can talk to that a little bit and how it shaped me and how Patagonia just opened up and working at places like Patagonia and Guild, I don't, I don't have to adjust. I do. Yeah. I am, I am fully in my flow and in my best self and showing up. Like an example of when that was clear to me or when I, made the decision even to go into HR. I was working at Pearl Vision and I was a new store manager and I was uh, kind of moving up and in the organization starting to do some training and development. And I had been transferred back to the corporate office from California to Dallas. And a woman started going around and I had come out in college, but I was living in Texas. And in Texas, there were still sodomy laws, so you could be put in jail for sodomy. There certainly were um, no protections for employment. As a matter of fact, it was like if you came out, it was perfectly legal to fire you simply for being gay. Just that single reason. So someone in the company started telling people, hey, Dean's gay. I don't think that he should be working here. Um, this isn't right. And... Um, and I remember being terrified, like a little bit, like holy smoke, this is like my big fear. And um, it wasn't like I hid it at work, um, but I certainly didn't wear a shirt that said like I'm gay. <laughs> but I didn't hide it. And and I thought, you know what? I'm not going to live like this. I'm not going to live in fear. And I went to the head of HR, Roy Wilson. I just walked in his office, like I'm Dean Carter. I don't know if you know me, but I uh, I need to let you know something. I'm gay. And that's not changing. And I understand there may be some people here that are concerned about that. And if you're concerned about that, or if this is a concern here, I can't work here. I feel like I've got a lot to give, and I feel like I'm making difference in this place. And if you don't want that, then I'll go somewhere else and do it. But if I just were checking in with you to let you know this isn't changing, and I'm here, and I hope to make a difference, but if it's a problem, I'll go. I'll leave the door right now. And he said, oh, Dean, you're so okay here. You're safe. You're valued. And I just want to let you know you, you have a place here. That was the day I decided to be the chief people officer. <laughs> I was like, Roy inspired me. And I'm like, okay, someday I can be in that role and do that for someone else. That was a big shaping moment for me that, I thought, okay, I'm walking to this and I'm going to lose my job or I could even go to jail. Like he could just like, but anyhow, you think things change and we're still fighting for that, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was, um, really gave me goosebumps, you know, and just, um, putting myself in your shoes and, um, trying to think about what that moment might have meant, um, but also, I, I realize as you're saying, we're still fighting for that, and at the same time, also feeling an, you know a sense of gratitude as to how things have been evolving and changing, you know, for for the better, with with more embrace, comfort, with um, you know, with 
allowing people to just be themselves and honoring and appreciating, you know, different paths, you know, that, uh, that we're taking in humanity, isn't it? But, you know, Dean, also the way you just like role play that, you know, if that was 80, 90% of how you actually did it, hats off to you, because I saw in that moment, you know, such, you know, with just um, a level of just centeredness, you know, just like comfort in expressing a thought, but also accepting that maybe, you know, this little community is uh, right for you or may not be right for you. And you're giving them the choice to make that call and you respect them for doing what they need to do for themselves. Uh, and at the same time, you have no insecurity about who you are and um, your place in the world, you know, regardless of what choice or decision they make, but you just want to give them that opportunity to make a very clear and informed choice. You know, anyway, so there's this thing, fusing of opposites, you know, fusing of opposites, not just like having the pendulum swing on just one side, which is either I'll completely dislike you and be devastated if you, you know, let me go or I'll think like you're amazing because you just kept me. No, you know, you make the call that's right for you. I'm going to make the call that's right for me. And I do think that we can make the joint call in a way that can do beautiful things. And at the same time, I know that with or without you, I'll, I'll thrive, you know. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's uh, anyway, it's a beautiful dance. It was, and you know, I believe in like showing up authentically is you bring your best self. And I actually did get ultimately promoted and into the person who was the person of leaving the company, not of their choice. And I end up taking their job. So weird kismet in that moment. Uh, uh, yeah. And it, it was an accelerant for my, my career. Actually, that was a surprise. Uh, you know, this, I think, and I think just showing up, as who you are and and being in spaces and places and finding them that that make that happen and that's really important to me whenever i go to places like guild to make sure that people feel safe and seen it's a huge huge part of i think my role to feel safe and seen so let's continue to expand on that a little bit about um people philosophies that really apply to today's time you shared how at patagonia you know, we see people as resources to steward, you know, not resources for extraction and depletion. And, you know, to think about like how we want this company to be run so that we're going to be in business a hundred years from now. Can, can you talk a little bit to, 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 to that? I'd like to look at the business model of companies and then apply the business model to the human model. So whatever those, I like to have a real close mirror of that. So I try to read the DNA of the company and then understand how do I apply that DNA into the people practices. Hopefully it's good DNA. In Patagonia, it happened to be really good DNA. Here is, um, so when we moved and had the conversation about moving from you know apparel into food, the concept of regenerative agriculture came up, which was the concept of that is the way we toil currently, soil like the toil, open up the soil, and then kind of grow things again is a highly destructive process to the soil. What happens when things grow, it creates this microbial community underneath with the seed. It kind of comes together. And then what happens when the seed grows, it comes up out of the ground and pulls in carbon into the soil. So it enriches the soil and there's this symbiotic relationship between the plant, the air, and the soil. In traditional tilling, when the plant is done at the end of the year, it produces a piece of corn. The farmer says, thanks for the corn, pulls it off, slices into the ground, kills the microbial community, and the dirt is less less alive than it was before. So we have to use fertilizers and spend all this money restoring the soil, and then the ecosystem around it is destroyed too. The rivers are dirty. The land is like the air is n not good. And and eventually you end up with something you have to put so much money into the, into the soil that it's expensive to grow crops because you, and then the food that you make is not that great. I thought about this around humans and our practice of human resources. And I felt like the annual performance review is a little bit like, thanks for the corn and like the ripping of the process and the conversation, even in mindsets is like, you're a three based in fixed mindsets, not growth mindsets. Like how do you get people to grow when you call someone a three? They, there's, not, there's no growth in that. I'm a three. And uh, so it got to thinking about, wow, what if I think about the practice of my practice, putting more people into people's lives, like we put into soil and re 
use regenerative practices around human beings, resulting in the question on the survey, not like how much more can you give us in discretionary effort, as a result of working for the company, does the company put more into your life than it takes out? Um, we started doing that testing like different benefits, and we did a new benefit where we were going to uh, basically work nine hours a day, uh, four days a week, and then um, every other Friday we would close. And then that we, so you would have one Friday off, basically giving 26 three-day workdays uh, weekends a year. So that was the whole company voted, and we did that. And we did a pre-survey and a post-survey to understand what was the impact. And six months later, we asked people, as a result of this, what was the impact on your relationship with your spouse? As a result of this, what is the, the impact on your time you spent with children? Your ability to go to the grocery store, your ability to buy healthy food, your ability to get outside and enjoy the outdoors and do the things that you love to do. All of those scores went up dramatically. I don't know any company that's ever said, as a result of working this company, we hope you have a better relationship with your spouse. I hope you have more time with your children. I hope you have the ability to get outside and play. I hope that you to go to the dentist and the doctor and buy healthy food. That context, once we put that out there and said, this is what we're trying to do at Patagonia, this is what we want to do about your life, it's like the Hotel California. People stayed in and checked in, and they did not check out. I will always believe in that concept now. I, I can't go back to the extractive practices of the profession of human resources. I can't go back to that. I have to think every single day, like, is this extractive, or is it putting back something back into people's lives? What is my, what's my moral responsibility in that? I think you're um, painting, for me, a picture of something that, you know, in my work, in our work at Mentor Institute, we've been striving to codify, which is of an inspired organization. What does it mean to be an inspired organization, an inspired culture, an inspired team, an inspired individual? I love uh, the idea that, um, you know, there are certain, I guess, you know, just lessons we can learn from nature or from organizational life that can apply to the human, you know, being the individual. And then, you know, kind of like amplifying it from the individual to the organization to the, you know, so that that's really, you know, that's really beautiful to see. I want to kind of like um, push the boundaries of this a little bit even further. So, you, you know, you've spoken about, you know, that form of regeneration and what you put in, right, to to each each of the you know, people, you know, in your organization versus what you're extracting from them. And, you know, you've given examples here of, you know, the childcare kind of story from Melinda, right? That became really helpful for, uh, you know, moms with, you know, who, who just recently had babies, right? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and then also this one now about, you know, a, a, a three-day weekends once every couple of weeks. Um, I am also convinced, and I want to test this with you and feel free to push back, that, Part of the solution lies in having us not have us see there to be a huge distinction between what we feel are moments in our life that are very nurturing and what we feel are moments in our life where we have to show up, you know, the call of duty and, and work. You know, in other words, that uh, why should we need like to de-stress from, from, from work of course, we, we need to regenerate. We need quiet moments, you know, both with our families, but also just by ourselves. But also, can it not be the case that um, if we create the right environment and bring in the right people, et cetera, that every moment of what they do is a joyful moment of engagement with their crafts and with their community and uh, therefore is giving them energy rather than taking energy out from them. And of course, you know, at the end of the day, physically the body becomes tired, but the spirit is very you know, nourished, you know, and in every moment at work. Anyway, thoughts, ideas, all that? I'm, I'm going to horribly quote Avon Chenard, but he said a, a master at kind of the point of life is that when they're at work and when they're at play, you really can't tell the difference. Ah, yeah, beautiful. Like that, and I'm, I'm butchering what he really said, but that is to some extent like the whole mastering of kind of how to be to live is like that work and play are integrated. You know, there's that TV show Severance. I don't know if you've seen that where they put a chip in someone's head and they separate work 
in life. All right. Right. And, you know, because they want to like this person thinks like I can separate my work and life and it's a disaster. Like it's clearly like this is a horrible thing. And it shows up so clearly in this moment when there really is a severance between work and life. And it just goes to show you can't you cannot separate those things. There is no such thing as leaving life behind and coming to work. And, and there's no such thing as, you know, your work not impacting your life. And I think that understanding the integration between those, I don't think there's like work-life balance. Like that's a weird concept to me. I think there is this integration of, I think if you go back to how we did things a long time ago, the work and life were integrated. Like this is kind of, you you woke up, worked, lived. And, and I think we're also losing a bit of play. Like this idea of play. I did a lot of research on play. Like what, why, why do we play and what is this? And it's not because we're human beings. It's because we're mammals. Mammals play. It's nothing. It's so deep in us. It is dogs play, cats play, whales play, bears play. Like, and we have this innate need as a mammal to play. When you create experiences where work and life and there's no space for play, Four of us, way past being a human being, is crushed. This idea of like work is play, play is work, life is work and play, like the integration of these things, that there's a little bit of opportunity to live and play and laugh. And I think it that is the ultimate like space to create is where everyone feels comfortable to do and live all those three things. Extract play from life or work then it goes against like our our deepest part of our dna that's very thought-provoking i haven't given a whole lot of um, a whole lot of attention to play and i think um, you're really sparking it for me as a topic i want to you know deep dive on are there any resources uh, that you might guide our listeners to and me as well you know in terms of uh, studying the interface between play and uh, the workplace there are, there's a lot of people who studied play there's a book called play there is an international institute for play someone who just really focuses in on that and yeah i um i was really curious about the impact of play because patagonia has this kind of theory about the importance of play and i just thought well let me peel that back like what does that mean and you can do yeah there's a re- institute for the science of play there's a book yeah. called play and i yeah, those are really great research points for me and i just continued to google like so i experiment with chat gpt right now like how yeah. would i play at work yeah. and uh, i think you'll find really great ways of implementing play and work and i don't think it's like putting you know more foosball tables at work i think there's like yeah. there's space for play and guild does this in a really fun way but first i was like what are they doing that for but every every meeting begins with a an icebreaker every meeting first i was like oh my god the icebreaker like this this is like so 1980 i cannot believe i'm like back to my training but what it does it's a little playful moment like a little moment of play before every meeting yeah and it it is usually something playful like what's the number one song in your spotify list or something more intense you know what was i asked the other day what was the coldest moment of your life because it was like a very cold day and every Someone's like, I climbed my Mount Kilimanjaro and I got frostbite. I'm like, that's a cold day. Yeah. So it's a moment to play and laugh. And it's an unlock for, I think, um, virtual work. Because yeah. we don't get to see each other in these moments. And so I you I reintroduce you at the beginning of every meeting that something about you, you don't know about me. And we all kind of do that. And then we go into our meeting. It's a, like, that's a small thing but that's play like that's play and work and i think we need to find ways of doing that so just don't don't jump into the next meeting and the next zoom and it's just like zoom 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 which is why people are depressed and actually the absence of play is depression that's what the science says when humans cannot play it is we get depressed i don't think we played a lot in covid i think that's why we had all these wellness programs and do all these things because play was difficult during that time 
this is um, really sparking something um, with me. Um, so one of the things that I've um, you know extracted from studying some of the inspirational, luminous kind of leaders from history, you know, the, one of my paths towards um, understanding you know human potential has been to study the Abraham Lincolns and the Mother Teresas and the Eleanor Roosevelt's and the Gandhis and yeah, the Nelson Mandela's and even like the Steve Jobs and the Warren Buffett's and others, right? And Yvonne can certainly be put into that group as well as a pioneering force, right? In his world's business. One thing I find from these people is that they were seeing so much more potential in people than most of us do on an average day. And, uh, you know, in the 20th century, we had a lot of advancements in science and I'm very happy and grateful for those. And they definitely helped us illuminate, you know, our communities with just greater insight about personality and behavior and motivations and all of that. But I think one of the things that was limiting about it is this notion of personality assessments. And again, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on that. But the idea that we are like fixed personalities, you know, and then we start to label ourselves and other people based on, you know, on the MBTI, you know, what did you score, you know, as a sense or a thinker or what have you. And, um, you know, with these people, what I find is that they had a certain hunger or a need or a desire to move humanity forward, you know, along some ideal vision they had of it, you know, where they wanted it to go. So, you know, Churchill in the Second World War seeking to want to, like, really get a lot of bravery and valor out of, you know, the British people and, you know, resiliency at a time when, you know, all hell is breaking loose. And Gandhi wanting to very peacefully, you know, demand from the British that just kind of leave our country and let us have the right to govern ourselves. And Mother Teresa wanting just like opening the heart, you know, for people to pay attention to the dying, the destitute and all that. So what I find in these people is that they just saw like Mother Teresa a lot more compassion in people than we necessarily tap into every day. Gandhi saw a lot more calmness in people, Church a lot more courage in people, Steve Jobs a lot more creativity in people. And somehow they were able to get people to that place where, I mean, it's kind of like what you were just saying about like Yvonne was able to get you closer to like your ideal self. And for those people who chose to follow them, those people who chose to be part of that change movement that they were, you know, inviting them on a journey of, they became just a lot more compassionate for a period of time, at least, if not for the rest of their lives. I don't know what those longitudinal studies might show, but for that period of time, they were just so much more courageous, so much more creative, so much more compassionate. And there are studies that have actually been done, you know, on some of these, like people being exposed to a Steve Jobs or a Mother Teresa or what have you. And they just self-report like, oh, wow, you know, I was just a lot more creative. I was just a lot more compassionate, you know, somehow in the presence of this person or in being in attunement with their message or their movement. And um, now, you know, you think about that at a high level. How do you apply that practically to the everyday world? A little bit of what you just said about play to me, you know, what it suggests is that, you know, these people who are coming in, you know, we think of them as just, you know, this is Hitendra showing up, this is Dean showing up. But no, actually, it's like, which version of Hitendra is showing up? Which version of Dean is showing up? And how can I make sure I get, like, the closest to the best version of Dean, the best version of Hitendra? And for that, doing a little bit of that play, that reset. So I've done, I've done some experiments with my executive MBA students here at Columbia, as well as with some of our, you know, executives in our mentor institute, like, you know, programs who have been volunteers and participants. And one thing we found is, inviting people to just take a pause before a critical meeting and use that pause to do a little bit of a reset, check in with their emotional state and make sure that they're opening themselves up to a positive intention for the meeting that is going to come up so that they see possibilities in it. Even if it's the nth meeting with finance and they just feel like finance never gets it, they're going to put constraints on me, you know, whatever it is, taking all that clutter out of their mind, opening themselves up, maybe visualizing a couple of positive interactions they'll have in the meeting. That's all it takes for them to actually go into the meeting and have a dynamic that pleasantly surprises them, you know, with what kind of outcomes they can get. Wow. That's really powerful. I think this, we do expect people to like at 9 p.m. or a.m. like show up in that moment without a pause, no breath between things. It's like meeting, 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 zoom, 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 zoom. And I think that like that idea of like, okay, let's pause for a moment and just be ready to be present or whatever the icebreaker or whatever those moments are, I think they're so critical. And I, and thanks for calling out all those people who brought really incredible things out of human beings. I just, there are people in my life that 
you know, pulled things out of me like Avon or Melinda or Lisa the Pisca or other people who like saw something in me or gave me a really safe space. And I hope that's my goal is I hope to give people that safe space to like be their full selves, to have space to time for quiet and play, to to think. It's so important. And I and I do feel like your point on people like MLK or Gandhi, Rosa Park, like people who really see like the world as 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 possibility for change. Like you don't do those things unless you see like there's possibility for good. You you don't put yourself in those situations if it or and I just I think there I read a book called The Ministry for the Future, which had a huge impact on me. And it really just talked about a few things. One, it talked about um there the world does not have it doesn't lack of abundance. We it is an abundant place. It's just centered in a few people, like hoarded. And if we worked around a world that more shared in abundance, that would be different. The book, also abundance, is like a mind-changing book for me. Just like to think about how I approach things, that there's abundance, not scarcity. I think I think when you start to approach the world from like scarcity or even your talent teams and things from scarcity, then you start thinking about how much can I extract, not how much you put in. If you're thinking about this from abundance, I'm like, we all, there's all, there's plenty for everyone. And I, I think that there's just this concern in the world and kind of how we've evolved a little bit is like this scarcity piece and kind of keeping as much as you can for you. And I think once you realize that there's like an abundance and that's kind of what the ministry for the future kind of just says, like, we need to move to a place to think about a world that is abundant, wealth that is abundant. If as long as we just shared it a little differently, then we we don't have the problems that we have. And yeah, it just even talked about like currency, which was a fascinating concept. Like, what if what if currency were like gold and silver? What if it were like sequestered carbon? What if we even just like shook up big ideas like that? And uh, any other book is like terror and hope, a world that if we don't do something, what could happen? But also, here's all these little moments of hope. Like, wow, maybe maybe the whole world is, since we based on the extraction of carbon, it's basically the whole currency. What if we turn, flip the currency on its head that the, that the retention of carbon was actually the currency? Think of the wealth dis- redistribution that, that would happen like in an instant if um, a rainforest that you do not destroy has continuing value. It's a fascinating concept. I love the idea. And you, know, you and I could just talk about abundance and bringing that to life and bringing that to people and how that, if everyone came with a, a view of abundance, wow. You know, it's been on my mind recently how um, typical diet, you know, of most of the, you know, organisms we know, you know, on the planet, you know, an elephant, what is, you know, what does it eat? And you know, a horse and what does it eat and all of that. And then you think about us as humans and you think about what a bounty, you know, what a bounty nature has given us in terms of different kinds of foods, you know, that it naturally just produces to serve our health and to serve our palates, right? To make our palates dance with joy, you know? And of course, then human ingenuity on top that over centuries has made um, humans understand how to mix and match things and spice things up and all of that and uh, you know, is you know, if there had to be any proof point, you know, about how much nature loves us, you know, and wants us to have joyful lives. I mean, you know, isn't that just a proof into itself? Because what if nature just produced some one kind of widget, right? Okay, like this is what you're going to eat, you know, <laughs> this block or something every day as human beings, you know, and you, you know, you have the rest of your life. You have sunlight. You have you know, play and all that. But in terms of eating, you're just going to have to eat this because like the human body just cannot take anything else except just that right i mean that could have been uh, a certain vision of a certain planet but but instead look what's done for us and so we, we, we got to love it back you know we got to say thank you nature you know thank you let's have a conversation let me be in service of right because like you're doing such beautiful things for me that is such a beautiful thought it's like thinking about the planet like as this like beautiful place that we have this mutual relationship with thank you 
and and returning. Thank you and returning. Thank you and returning. I think we thought of it at this place of like just like humans, you know, how much can we extract from the planet? How much can we extract from humans? I think those models. I think we both know those models aren't sustainable. <laughs> you can't continue business models that are only focused on the extractions of humans, and you can't. We we can't have a planet where we just figure out how much we can extract from it too. We just got to figure out how to live with it and breathe with it and enjoy like the the beautiful palette that it's creating for in our food. Like it just there's all there is abundance, but man, we just got to figure out how to live less of scarcity and we'll be we're going to be good. It's <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. So one of the things you've you've spoken about is the importance of honoring you know every individual's um just you know natural hunger to want to be their true selves i'm curious when you think uh, of a collective you know whether it's at guild or patagonia right or or uh, other collectives you've been part of how do you ensure though that uh, you know that in a collective as individuals are being invited to really um be be their true selves that at the end of the day, you still get, you know, a certain form of harmony and alignment and give and take and, um, you know, consistency, right? In the uh, shared energies and quest and direction and progress and, and all of that. Because uh, there seems to be, I think in some cases, you know, struggles that organizations have had on uh, the one hand wanting to, you know, create that sense of flexibility, freedom, self-expression, but on the other hand, finding that it has led at times to, uh, you know, a lot of tensions and unexpected, you know, conflicts, you know, between different groups that think differently about things and now they're empowered to speak up or, you know, people who might um, just be very strongly resistant to a certain, you know, let's say corporate mandate, you know, et cetera, because like they, they, you know, are being empowered to kind of, you know, lend their voice. So, so they appear to me almost like mathematically this, this, uh, this conflict between, the idea of unleashing the genie, you know, uh, of, of the individual kind of, you know, expression and all that. And yet, on the other hand, wanting a collective to come together and, you know, kind of like, you know, march to the same drumbeat. Wow. That's, um, there's a lot in that. I, here's my view also of kind of the role in business and for, for me. My role is the curation of a community. I'm not doing workspaces and filling cubes and like that is not my role, but I do need to think about it as this organism and a community. So healthy communities have a lot of things in them. They have youth and babies and middle people and they have um, people who are wise and emeritus. And that was one of the things that really hit me is Patagonia did a really good job at bringing people into community. Um, around um, having children and that moment and surfing when you're young and all that and did a terrible job in terms of understanding about our aging population. And we came together and formed a group called the Emeritus and we respect the wisdom of the people who've been around for a while. They're there to, we're going to come together and tell stories about the company to preserve that and um, so we created a whole group called the, the Emeritus. And so, and we have benefits and we change the way we think about retirement, not a cliff, but a glide. And so first, I think that understanding you, communities need to be rich and there needs to be variety in them too. Like diversity in communities are more healthy and, and more sustainable. The only thing about the, the community has to have something in common, whatever that is, that they... That is the thing that ties communities together and the things that separates them. You kind of have to, you don't have to love all the same things, but you kind of have to dislike the same things, <laughs> if that makes sense. So like in a community like at Patagonia, like um, you had to be concerned about the climate. Like that, you had to share a visceral, like we have to do something about the planet. Otherwise, it's a terrible place to work. Like, so like, Horrible. If you didn't believe in climate change, it is the worst place on the planet to work. And I feel like once you know your thing, then you can bring community around a purpose. Whatever that is, this has to be a shared purpose and you hire people who believe in this purpose. 
then you can have this broad diversity of backgrounds and likes, dislikes, all um, age, demographics, all these things can be a rich community that you can build, but you do have to have a shared purpose. Like you kind of all have to be moving in the same direction. This kind of pull, I think of places just getting kind of the bio, you know, diversity for that sake isn't helpful unless you're anchored to a single purpose. And once you have that and everyone's aligned to that, whether it was like Apple, their creativity or Patagonia, the planet, Guild, Opportunity, like these, you really need to have like a single thing like you're working around. Even even in challenging environments, I think there's a place to rally people around like a, a purpose and finding people who are in that. I just, like Sears was not Patagonia. <laughs> just just a very different culture. And we knew that that the business was challenging. Like we knew that like kind of, I always kind of say, we kind of all knew that we were on the Titanic. Like we knew that this thing was going down. So I was like, what do I do in this? And how do I, like, I can't have this as the purpose of like staying. How do I wrap people around an idea that we can all share? Then I thought, okay, why don't we do this? And I brought my team together and this is 6,000 people. So I had a huge HR team. And it just said, we're going to be the band. We are going to be the band on the Titanic. Let's just be transparent that we are on the Titanic, but let's play the best music that there is possible. You're going to be the best trombone player and the best drummer and the best bass player. And we are going to do, we are going to be best at human resources that anyone has seen. Like, I'm going to make sure that when you're, when this thing like starts to feel uncomfortable, you all have a lifeboat and whatever is next for you will be so much better than the boat you got in on. I promise you. And so we did. We did like on the Titanic. We did beautiful HR. We won Brandon Hall Awards. We formed an organization that exists today on the greatest analytic talent analytic minds that come together at Northwestern University. Every single person pretty much are now heads of HR, leading big organizations, as the as the thing ship went down and they all got lifeboats, they all are leading significant organizations in people and culture all over the country. That wasn't saving the planet. That wasn't unlocking opportunity for America's workforce. It was just like a single purpose of like, let's be the best at this. And everyone rallied around. We had a really good time on the Titanic. <laughs> My point of this story is like, it don't have to be a beautiful place like Patagonia or a clear purpose like Guild. Sometimes you can create a purpose like, let's just be the band on the Titanic and you can bring diverse people together to come together for that. And like, let's help each other. We had this image of being like in a giant rubber life raft. And if there was a hole in any of it or anyone fell out there in the raft, pull them back in. Like we are all in this crazy, wild, roaring river together so anyhow using imagery storytelling and the common purpose even in the most challenging situations i think you can rally people but you have to have like a shared purpose dean sorry i think there's a there's a book lurking somewhere in there <laughs> that was that was so beautiful uh you shared so many really resonant things you know in um in the conversation we just had um you know the uh the shared purpose as a critical enabler of getting a collective together to still be the authentic self, but also be really united behind a common cause. The work at Patagonia to look at the 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 elders, you know, and um, and to think about retirement not as a cliff but as a glide. I, I love that idea. I love that idea, and also recognize that they have something unique to offer, you know, because they hold history, the organization's history, right at the core, you know, and uh, and then this incredible capacity to you know, not have to pretend that everything is hunky-dory, but to recognize sometimes that we're in turbulent waters, not just that, but we might actually be on a ship that is going down. That doesn't mean you all just like turn in your papers because there's still work to be done and somebody has to be the band on that ship and somebody has to gracefully allow everyone to, you know, step by step, like exit from the ship as many people as we can and all of that, right? One thing that particularly I, I found very, you know, rewarding about that is that one of the things I've been thinking about, Dean, is that 
how do we get everybody, right, everybody to get invested in helping advance the world? When you think about ESG, for example, when you think about the environment, for example, and all of that, you know, we've, you know, we've created this very divisive kind of kind of idea that there are some companies who get it, let's say green and energy companies, and then there there, there are some who don't, you know, and, and they're the ones who are, um, you know, giving us fossil fuel, for example, or fossil fuel oriented companies, right? But on the other hand, we saw like what happens when like you actually have energy insecurity because, you know, there's a scarcity of, you know, energy available and prices shoot up and the people who suffer the most are the, you know, are the poor. And, and so we kind of need, you know, the Chevrons and Exxons and others of the world to show up and do their work every day for the time being as we perhaps seek to transition, you know, from our current consumption habits to either, you know, lesser consumption or a healthier form of, you know, energy generation, whatever it might be. In the meanwhile, we have to be thankful, you know, even to these, you know, players. And so, but what that means to me is that if I'm at one of these organizations, then, you know, can I approach my work with the mindset that I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to, you know, be around forever. You know, I'm going to try to be around for as long as it takes for me to be able to hand the baton to either another subsidiary or division within my organization that is producing more healthier energy or until people just like tame their energy consumption habits because in the US we consume like 30 times more energy than the global south and all of that, you know, so that there's less of me that's needed. And when there's less of me that's needed, I'll regenerate, you know, I'll reinvent myself and go and do whatever it is I need to. And for a period of time, I may need to be part of that band on the Titanic. And I'm actually kind of like almost hopeful that that day comes sooner than later because of my love for the planet, right? But that doesn't give me lack of meaning. It doesn't give me lack of relevance and all of that. And I can continue to responsibly play my game. And then for the rest of us, you know, who are not at those organizations, we can share them on to do it that way. Do it that way, which is keep playing the good game. Please try to generate energy for us at the lowest cost possible for now. But at the same time, collectively, let's work towards an alternative. And when that moment comes, please be part of the ban on the Titanic. That's exactly it. It can be done in beautiful easy places and not easy. The work is hard at Patagonia or on in Sears. Like I think there's a way to find out like, how can you do something that's good? And I think there's power in pointing people to a North star, like there, whatever that is, like there's a North star, like that is important. I always feel like it's important to read the room. So like I'm at Sears, I have to read the room. What is in their heads and what, like, what are they, what are they worried about? What are they concerned about? What are they like, why am I here? What's going to happen when this thing sinks? Am I going to have a good life? Like that's, and so knowing that I'm like, okay, that's why we're going to be the best band. I'm going to, all of the things that are in your head, you're worried about, then that's going to do this. If you're worried about the planet, then come to Patagonia, like come be a part. If you're worried about opportunity, come to Guild. If you're in another place that is like not that, find out what puts in people's head. Read the room, read read the room, and you'll find out like feeling that everyone shares, and like grab that and state it. Like let's go after that. Like that's my unlock. You're you're getting me to feel the power of you know collective consciousness. You know, the idea that, uh, you know, if you think about you and me just purely in terms of our physical self, then of course we are separated, right, in physical space and all of that. But then there's a certain energy and there's a certain consciousness. And when you think about myself and yourself and others in that way, then there's more fluidity, there's more capacity to fuse and unite and all of that. And at that level, there may be a lot of power for us in what you're saying to to see collectives arise at various levels right at the from the individual to the family to the community to the organization to a profession to you know to a society a nation and perhaps even you know the shared humanity at a given point in time and you know all of that and the integrative thread that connects you know a generation with past generations i mean so there's a shared identity we get, right? And that collective, you know, and that collective, right? And that's what you're talking about, right? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, and I do believe, I don't remember the book exactly, but I read a book and it talked about kind of the nature of human. Again, I'm going back, like, so we're made up of atoms and molecules. Like that's us just spinning atoms and molecules. But those 
none of those really touch like the atoms and molecules, but there's an energy that keeps them together. Like the atoms and molecules that are spinning super fast all around our bodies. And then they kind of get tighter and snugger and they make things like bones and livers and stomachs and faces and eyes and all these things, but they just get tight. Yeah, and yeah. Formed. But it, I, I do not end here. I don't end here. This is just what you can see. And this is just where the density happens. Yeah. I'm like way out here. Like yeah. who I am is 10 feet beyond of what you can see and touch. And because there's still like my energy in these atoms that this is just the density part. And I really believe that when you you're in a space, you can, you can tell this kind of like the energy of, of human or even animal, everything is like a tree does it just stops at that point, but it, it, it exists beyond like the tree that you can see. And yeah, it's just like being aware of that, being aware yeah. of your space and being aware of the, what you're putting out into the world and what you're extracting. Are you being open to moments to like, just breathe in a tree <laughs> so like, yeah. but like, and, and restore. And like when you're living life to breathe in, breathe out, are you thinking about this whole exchange and are, are you being fair? Is this a fair exchange? I think if we all thought about like, there's plenty, like it just, it'll all come back and go there, come back and go back. We'd be good. <laughs> That's so amazing. Um, I, it's reminding me of uh, this moment close to your neck of the woods. I was on driving on, you know, highway 110 towards Pasadena. And uh, it was after one of these recent, you know, like bursts of, you know, cloud and rain yeah. weather. And then suddenly there was this rainbow, you know, this rainbow out there. And yeah. uh, it was it was like this painting in the sky, right? And uh, you look at it and I was like, wow, nature, you know, nature is just uh, rewarding us with this little gift, right? With this gift. Yeah. I'm like, look, let me just paint something in the sky for you all. Just to give you a little bit of extra joy, right? And, and, uh, You're driving down the road. Let me just make something beautiful for you. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. So these conversations subtly are happening all the time, right, in, in nature. So, so powerful. Um, Dean, thank you for all you do, for the path you're on, and the messages and ideas that you have brought to our community today. You know, cheering you on at Guild, and um, yeah, just in your personal journey. What's... Um, as we get ourselves to um, closing here, what's, um, you know, what's your big dream at this stage in your career and life and all that you've experienced and done and felt and sensed, you know, what is it, um, you know, what's your big dream? That's a great question, but I do have like a dream. I really am serious about this movement, a movement to like belief in being regenerative about everything that you do, being like, the, the work experience is regenerative. The, my commitment to my family is regenerative. My commitment to this planet is regenerative. Like this, my commitment to a conversation with me and you is like regenerative. And it is like, I can feel like the energy coming in and I'm sharing and like you're bringing energy towards me and I can just feel it. If I could create a movement around everyone realizing that and like, you know, you need to think about what you're putting into the space is at least as much as you're taking out. Least. And uh, I, if I could to get a movement, people were into that and understood it, either at work or at play or whatever integration of that, that would be if I had a dream and I could like get on stage and or do something and like convince people like this is this is what it's all about. Just like we have to regenerate. That would be my dream. If I could do that it would be super cool. That's a beautiful dream, beautiful dream, and uh, cheering you on towards, um, you know, one of the things I find from studying the Rosa Parks and the MLKs and the Gandhis and Lincolns and all is that, um, you know, they had this beautiful, uplifting, inspiring sort of vision of like a perfect world, right? And, you know, it doesn't have to be the same for all of them. It could be like their version of it, but it's beautiful in each of them in their cases. And then, you know, they recognize that the world may not get there tomorrow. They were motivated to wanting to move it a couple of inches, you know, in, in the right direction and then hand the baton to the next generation to, you know, keep going on that quest. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and so, so you have this beautiful dream, you know, it's so, so vivid and inspiring to, to hear and uh, so uh, critical for today's time. And I have no doubt that um, in the years ahead, you're going to, you're going to move the world in meaningful ways, you know, inches closer to that. So, so that's beautiful. Inches closer is, Good with me.
inches closer. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a great conversation. Well, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. It's been just such a pleasure um, talking with you. And I, I hope we get to continue another conversation again sometime. Yeah, me too. Thank you very much on behalf of listeners, Dean, and all the best. <laughs>